Hello, everyone. Welcome to Michigan State University's Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast dedicated to the transformative power of our faculty, research, and pedagogy here at Michigan State. In each episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor, we offer an inside perspective on the research, teaching, and scholarship that are enriching the ways we think and act in a complex, interconnected world. I'm your host, Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters. This podcast is dedicated to inviting faculty from around the college to talk about their work, and it is a real pleasure today to be able to welcome Kathleen Fitzpatrick, who is a professor of English and who is also the director of Digital Humanities. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. Happy to be here. I wanted to start off by talking about your recent book, Generous Thinking, Mm -hmm. which I had the pleasure of hearing you talk about uh, in the fall semester and also uh, was able to participate at least a little bit in the review process. One of the things that's really, I think, important and special about the book is the manner in which you attempt to put generous thinking into practice Mm -hmm. as part of the process by which the book was developed and and published. So it'd be great if you could talk a little bit about that process. Absolutely. The book had grown out of a bunch of work that I had been doing on my blog already. And I had been in dialogue with a bunch of colleagues about some questions about the future of the university and how we might make it a more generous, more productive environment, both for scholars on campus and for the the surrounding community and the relationship between the two. And so when it came time to have the manuscript reviewed, um, the press, the book is out from Johns Hopkins, the press was enormously supportive of the idea of me doing a community-based review for the book. So we posted um, the entire draft online on Humanities Commons, um, used the comment press platform um, to do this so that people could comment paragraph by paragraph on the text as a whole. And it was it was an enormously generative process for me. Um, the The real generosity, I think, was just in the number of readers who came and paid attention to it and really gave me feedback. Um, you know, the feedback wasn't universally positive. Um, some of it, some of it was quite critical, and it was stuff that I needed to hear. And I'm I'm enormously grateful to those readers for really having helped guide the project. Um, so, insofar as the book is is successful, it has a whole lot to do with those readers and they're taking the time um, to spend with the manuscript and to help guide me toward, toward making it smarter than it was. And you had some experience with that kind of community review process mm, with mm-hmm. planned obsolescence. So how did this process differ from that one? Well, planned obsolescence, um, I had done a very similar, I mean, structurally, it's very much the same kind of review. We used Comment Press for that one. We did it at Media Commons, um, as Humanities Commons didn't exist back in 2009. Uh, but the, the 2009 was different, mm-hmm. right? It was a different a- era in the age of the internet. And um, I sort of naively blundered into just posting the whole thing online and completely opening it up and assuming that people would play nice. Mm-hmm. And they did. You know, by and large, everybody came in and I didn't ask them to leave their name with their comments. They could have commented anonymously, but they didn't. They left their name and they were in dialogue with me in really open and, and positive ways. And, you know, going into the review process for generous thinking, I had that wonderful experience to build on and I felt really positively about it. But 
I had been watching over the last couple of years as scholars were being attacked online for expressing controversial opinions and as trolls were interfering with productive dialogue. And I just thought, well, maybe I need to be a little more cautious this time about how I go at this. Well, if I'm going to be cautious and yet I'm going to be true to my values in terms of opening this manuscript up to the community, how would I do it? And so what I decided this time out was to sort of stage um, a review in, well, to, in stages, mm-hmm. right? I, I first opened it to a very small circle of friends and family for a week so that they could just kick the tires for me and make sure that there wasn't anything either mortifyingly embarrassing that I would want to change right away or that, you know, everything worked. And then after that, I invited 40 readers in for a two-week period to say, you know, these are people that I've been in dialogue with online, not all of them, you know, really enthusiastic and optimistic about the project, some of them quite critical and and maybe even a couple of curmudgeons in (laughs) there, Um, but people who I trusted to really engage with the project in a serious way. And I asked them to come together, and and many of them did um, come, and during that two-week period start the process of reading in a way that set the tone for the larger community engagement. So after that two weeks, when I then opened the thing up entirely to the public and more readers came in, people who I didn't know at all, there was already a base layer of, of community feeling in the comments that I think made the tone of what followed um, remain productive and constructive, even when it was being highly critical. Yeah, I think one of the things that's most exciting about the project is the way that you're performing the values that you care most deeply about in the book. And the question is, how do we put those values into practice through scholarship? Absolutely. Um, And so there are two dimensions that that even in what you just said uh, strike me as important to highlight. One is trust and Mm -hmm. the cultivation of trust and how one does that. And probably relatedly is this value of what you call in the book uh, critical humility. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of how are we how are we being critical of one another, but in this uh, humble way that recognizes our own blindnesses, our own limitations? Absolutely. Absolutely. The notion of critical humility, I think, is really important. and it's one that, I mean, it takes a while to unpack in the context of the book, but it it really is an attempt to think about any given situation in which I am presenting an idea or I am in conversation with people either within my community or outside my community is recognizing that in that exchange, I probably have less to teach than I do to learn and recognizing that I or remaining open to that potential of learning at any given moment, I think is really crucial. And in particularly in an open review process, like the one that we did for generous thinking, you know, people have asked me how I can release material that isn't finished, that isn't polished, that hasn't seen an editor out into the world. You know, is it only because I'm a full professor and I've got tenure and I'm safe that I have a certain level of privilege that allows me to make my flaws visible, you know, from the get-go? And I think there is something to be said for that. I mean, it, it really does require a certain amount of privilege and safety to be able to make work that isn't quite as polished, um, available to a community to comment upon. 
But it also requires just recognizing that, quite honestly, even work that has been edited and that has been polished, that has been heavily revised, at some point we're still going to find those flaws in it. Those flaws will always be there. And if we're willing to sort of reckon with the fact that at some future moment we're going to look back on whatever it is we're doing today and see those flaws or those biases or those blind spots, we might be able then to engage a little bit more open right now with that material. Um, so critical humility. Absolutely. And I think one of the dimensions of that that's so important and also difficult to embody is the vulnerability because we are taught from a very early age in our culture, I think more broadly, but yeah. I think particularly in higher education through graduate school that the that that sort of vulnerability is weakness absolutely and not actually a source if you can settle into it in a way that is authentic and um a little resilient mm -hmm. you can really gain a lot but when we think of that vulnerability as a weakness we lose that opportunity i think that's exactly right you know i had after a talk that i had given about the book in its relatively early development period someone came up to me and said you know i just want to i want to thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable around this project and vulnerability wasn't a word that i had really associated with what i was doing but when i went back and looked at the manuscript i recognized the number of places in which I felt absolutely compelled to expose my anxieties about writing and how difficult it is and my anxieties about reading and whether I've ever done enough of it and my anxieties about whether I'm making the right choices in my academic career. And it occurred to me that that this is this has been something that I've been working on for myself all along. Is really finding those places where I can I can reveal my vulnerability because I am safe, and therefore make it possible for those who feel those same vulnerabilities but don't feel safe expressing them to recognize that they're okay, yeah. right? That they are very much in the same position that we all are in. And that if I can work through some of my vulnerabilities in public, then maybe we all stand a better chance of coming together um, around the values of community and concern and care yeah. um, that we're trying to enact. I think that lending courage to be vulnerable is a really important part of, of what you've done with this book and the process by which well. it's it's coming out to the public. I hope so. I hope so, because I do think it's really, it's important. I mean, we, we are at an inflection point, I think, in the relationship between um, the academy and the broader public in which we absolutely have to find ways to create connection. Um, and not just, you know, we need to create connections on campus as well to, to be a community that understands itself as a community. But we really need to be making stronger connections with the world around us in order to be able to demonstrate the importance of what it is that happens on campus. Um, because I think it's it's much too easy for that to become invisible and to become inward facing. Absolutely. And I think the the challenge is to have those connections be textured human connections. Absolutely. And that, that requires us to open ourselves up in ways that make us a little bit uncomfortable. Quite. You know? Quite. And, and, and what I think you've experienced, and I've certainly experienced it, is that when you take that risk a little bit, it's amazing the kind of resonance it has and the depth of the connection that then emerges. Yeah.
Definitely, definitely. And I think that, that that kind of connection is going to be crucial, um, particularly in the next few years, to thinking about what it is that this culture wants its universities to be, um, right. what, what it is universities are for. Um, we, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, lived through a period in which it was very clearly understood that the university was an engine of social mobility, that it provided a broad-based liberal arts education at an affordable price to as many people as it possibly could, and that it was it, it, that the university was seen as something that was owned by the by the society as a whole and the benefits that it provided were primarily social benefits and we're now living through a moment in which education is increasingly understood as a private responsibility rather than a public good the costs of education are devolving onto individual students and families rather than the state and the good that education provides seems primarily to be an individual benefit and unless we can come back together and recognize that no education Education is really meant as a, a social engine. It is something that builds society and community. If we can start rethinking what education is for, education for community, um, our universities stand to then, you know, create that stronger relationship with the public that will sustain them going forward. Absolutely. And one of the approaches that you take in the book and that you give real depth to is an approach that focuses on intellectual and ethical habits and Absolutely. habits of mind, habits of thinking. So how do you talk and think about that in relation to the question that you just raised around how the how, how higher education mm -hmm. positions itself and mm -hmm. and articulates its value for the broader public? Well, I think there are a couple of key things that, that come out of my thinking in the book um, in terms of building those relationships, one of which is thinking about the ways that faculty do their work, the ways that they conduct their research, communicate their research over the course of the last 30 to 40 years, those processes have become increasingly internally focused, right? We publish in journals that can't be accessed off campus. We publish in language that can't be accessed by non-experts. And we really direct our attention to one another and to the work that we do internally. We're, we're sort of inward facing in that way. And it's understandable why we do that, because that's what the institutional reward structure all focus on is right conducting that research and publishing in those professional places for other professionals to read. But the more that we can start thinking about doing that work in public, in, you know, not, and I, I do want to stipulate that I am not suggesting that we stop publishing in journals or that we stop writing books that are academic monographs published for other professionals. I think that that inward-facing professional discourse matters, and it continues to matter. But we also need to find ways to get the importance of that work that we're doing for one another in front of the public, to help the public see why the work that we're doing on campus ought to be supported and ought to continue. So this is a key component, is really thinking about what public-facing scholarship might look like in the future. Some of it is finding ways to publish in open access venues. Some of it is thinking about more public intellectual spaces. 
in which our, our, our language and our discourse are really aimed at a broader audience than what we ordinarily produce for one another. And some of it is engaging in um, what I would think of as community-engaged scholarship, right? Scholarship that isn't just us talking to the world, but in fact inviting the world into the conversation and really thinking about how we can how we can activate the publics with whom we want to work to do some of the work on their behalf, right? Mm. I mean, there's been an argument about public history for a long time that the purpose of public history is not to teach the public history, but in fact to support the public in doing their own history. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can think about how our work as scholars is really always engaged in that project and helping the public do the work on their behalf, um, the better off we'll be. Well, I think that that requires a whole different set of of intellectual and ethical habits, and the, yes. along the lines of that you are articulating in in the book, one of the habits that you talk about is a listening presence. Yes, and t- bringing that listening presence and being present in an open and listening way, being prepared to learn in our conversations with a broader public and being being engaged with the public at that core level not to yeah. bring work to them but to be to to frame the questions with them and to mm-hmm. learn from them about you know what resonates what will work what won't work and to be in dialogue in a respectful humble way is exactly part of what you're we're talking about. I, I think so. It is. Absolutely. And it's not easy, mm. right, cultivating that listening presence. I mean, we do not live in a culture of listening right now. In fact, if anything, we live in a culture of yelling. Mm. And finding ways to listen to the things that you don't want to hear, right, or that you certainly don't know why you should hear them, um, but but figuring out what is in them that you ought to be hearing is really hard, um, but crucial. And so, yes, some of it is listening to public concerns and finding out where public interest actually lies. Some of it is in um, really thinking about the positions that we don't agree with and finding ways to engage with them as themselves, right, rather than as what we think those positions are. Um, you know, the, the primary example that I point to of this kind of work is a really astonishing book um, by Arlie Russell Hochschild, um, Strangers in Their Own Land, which if you haven't read, it's completely worth reading, really focuses on um, on the, the alienation of the far right in the United States and where it stems from and how, how people in particularly the Tea Party, which is where she's focused um, in southwestern Louisiana, um, how they understand the world around them in order to produce the political positions that they've taken up. And this book was researched through an extraordinarily long process of sitting down with these people and having them tell their stories and listening to their stories and asking them the right questions to elicit more of the reasoning that they were bringing to them, and then attempting to tell the deep narrative of what she was hearing back to them to say, is this, does this represent your experience? And then correcting when they said, no, that doesn't represent my experience at all. That's completely wrong. Mm. And, you know, in the process of this book, it becomes very clear by the end that she hasn't changed a whole lot of minds. It's not as though, you know, the Berkeley sociologists swooped into southwestern Louisiana and by listening managed to get everybody to start voting Democrat. Um, But 
she does get them to trust her mm-hmm. and to have these conversations with her in an environment in which they become willing to listen to her as well as her being willing to listen to them. And so that listening presence for me is really, I mean, it is, it, it is only the start, mm-hmm. right? But it's the crucial place to begin, to really think about who it is we're in dialogue with and what it is they're actually trying to say. Yeah, I think that takes, it, that takes time, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and it takes intentionality, mm-hmm. and it takes... Um, a willingness not to bring to that listening an intention of changing the minds, you know, bringing your ideology to them, you know, shifting right. views, but right. actually attending to what's being said, why people are saying what they're saying, and then the, the checking. So the dialogical dimension of that is saying, okay, this is what I'm hearing. Right. Is this right? Right. I mean, so much of our listening has turned into hearing just enough of what you have to say in order to formulate my response, right? Um, and, and this listening presence <laughs> really does require slowing down and forestalling formulating my response and really attempting to engage with, with what's actually being said to make sure that I understand it um, before moving on. One of the key parts of that slowing down, though, is that I think we really need to think about those institutional reward structures Mm -hmm. and what it means for all of us if we were to slow down and engage with community more and really take the time in our scholarship not to rush the next article out or the next book out because we need to, but instead to really think through um, the kinds of of dialogue and engagement that are best going to serve our purposes and are best going to support our values. And that is really going to require Require some deep institutional change in order to think about how that work of community engagement, of listening, of slowing down can be supported and promoted. Absolutely. Well, I'm really grateful that you're on the Humanities Metrics uh, um, Advisory Group because we're thinking about that from the standpoint of, of that project, trying to sort of think about metrics from a a values basis and beginning with the values. But I think one of the things that's going to, that that's going to require is for us to expose the process precisely in Mm -hmm. the way that you've done Mm -hmm. with generous thinking. So because it takes longer to, to come to certain kinds of outcomes, we really need to be able to see the process so that we can articulate, okay, are the values being worked out in them? Can we recognize, yes, this is actually something that is getting purchased in a a broader area that other uh, people are recognizing the value of it so that as we think about integrating that into the promotion and tenure process and the raise process, that we see the work being done in the process. So the process has to be central. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's been really important in the college's um, recent turn to thinking about a sort of formative process of evaluation as much as a summative process, right? So that the annual review always wants to know what you did right, this year. But what you did is going to be heavily colored by what 
you set out to do. And if you're able to articulate um, in any given year that the thing that I am doing is going to require some really deep thinking, it's going to require a lot of reading, it's going to have this really great outcome eventually, but it's going to take me longer to get to that outcome because of the nature of the process, then it becomes a lot easier to, to, to reward that process and not just reward the things that actually generate a new line on the CV. Right, exactly. And I think that the, telling that story, having a more textured narrative mm -hmm. about the arc of your work with respect to a specific kind of project, but I think more broadly, the arc of your work on a broader career horizon, where you're, where you and your colleagues want to go with, with the kind of work that you're doing is going to be so important, particularly as we have faculty who really want to do innovative, intersectional, interdisciplinary kind of work that creates new constellations of, of, of knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, the, the process for that also then, you know, requires us to be, have some discipline about, okay, well, we're going to have this longer term process, but there will be markers of success mm -hmm. along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think really articulating what those markers of success look like in each individual case, right? right? That they're not going to look the same from one scholar to the next, and they shouldn't look the same. But that because I work in a particular way, because I am engaged with a particular community, success is going to look like this to me. And then we can assess how that's going over the course of time, I think, is going to be crucial. Absolutely. And and that's going to take a lot of learning on the part of our faculty in, in units. Absolutely. Because I think one of the challenges that we're facing is, I mean, interestingly, um, the the higher you get up in the institutional hierarchy, the more flexible things are with respect to uh, di respecting different disciplinary standards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so a challenge that we always have is, okay, at the disciplinary level, at the unit level, are is there some understanding of and some acceptance of and embracing of uh, that more textured way of telling yeah. a story and more um, faculty development focus for the work. Absolutely. And I, I think some of the, the challenges that we're facing have originated for very good, laudable reasons, right? There was a, a, a real investment in objective standards for tenure and promotion, for instance, in things that can be measured and counted um, precisely because we want to be sure that bias is not creeping in. And so if we hold everybody to the same kind of standard that can be measured objectively, I can tell, yes, you have published a book from a university press, therefore we know that you have done what you needed to do. And that kind of objectivity is great and important, um, but we need to find ways to be able to nonetheless reckon with judgment and to recognize that, that we don't have to have metrics that are metrical right? <laughs> um, in order to be able to be open and honest and forthright and and um, generous. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think, yeah. yeah, I think that the, and, and this, I think you do talk a little bit about your book with, mm -hmm. with respect, particularly to the way, ways the conversation around values can itself be used 
to police and to exclude rather than to include. Absolutely. But but I think something similar is happening, too, with a kind of certain vision of objectivity, Mm -hmm. because there is no pure objectivity in the in the sense in which scientists have dreamed or and philosophers have dreamed for 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 eons absolutely everything is contextual and situational and and that's why it's so important to be to be exposing ourselves in these ways that allow us to to be honest with where our biases are are creeping in and how we are recognizing them as operating in these decisions. Definitely, definitely. And really being able to communicate who we are and where we are and how we're reading um, becomes a a key component of these review processes, definitely. So as you as you think about generous thinking and the and the work that the the book is is doing and and situating that within Mm -hmm. sort of the possibility of a of a reformed or reinvigorated higher education. Mm-hmm. How do you see that playing out? Small question. I oh, know. tiny <laughs> little question. Um, and I draw a great big breath because I honestly don't know how to answer it. Um, I, I mean, I would really love to see some deep institutional thinking about what the future of an institutional community and its relationship to the publics by which it's surrounded might look like. One of the things, I mean, this this goes back to, and I I talk about this at the opening of my last chapter um, in the book, it goes back to an experience that I had um, at a conference that was um, a meeting of the directors of university presses who have a reporting relationship with their libraries. And they were talking about open access publishing and attempting to bring two very different cultures around publishing together into some kind of productive dialogue. And during the course of this workshop, there was a keynote that was delivered by the provost of a very large West Coast public university who was talking about um, his university's recommitment to the notion of public service as the foundation of its purpose, and that at the heart of its mission was this sense of it being a public university in in service to the public good. And he he had this um, really inspirational talk about the ways that open access publishing, getting faculty work into greater communication with the surrounding public would support that purpose. It was really, it was great. It was a fantastic talk, Um, right up until the point at which tenure and promotion came up in the the question and answer period. And then he reverted to all of the standard assessments of quality and, you know, the highest rated journals and so forth that we need to know that our faculty are publishing in the best possible places. And so I asked him, um, you know, I'm a little frustrated by this response. I asked him, what would it be for the provost of a very visible, very highly thought of public university um, to gather the entire campus together from the provost through the deans to the chairs and all of the faculty and say, we are going to revise all of our tenure and promotion standards. We're going to take a hard look at all of them and ensure that everything in those standards for research, for teaching, for service, for outreach, everything that we're assessing has at its root public service as mission one, right? To make sure that the things that we think of as excellence are really aimed at that mission. I said, what what would be possible if you were able to do that? 
And there's this pause, and he says, well, any university that did that would immediately lose competitiveness within its cohort. And the worst of it is that he's right. He's right, right? All of our metrics at the national and the regional level focus on the kinds of competitiveness and um, prestige that are exclusive rather than inclusive and that wind up reinforcing the, the in internally focused competitive structures of the ways that we work. So I would really love to see an institution like maybe this one hmm undertake that operation mm -hmm. of really sitting down with promotion and tenure standards and ensuring that what we're doing community-wide, everywhere, has really got public service at its mission, right? That it's not just a matter of our mission statement, but in fact, our actual mission and the actual ways we're working and the ways that we're rewarding work. It's a big ask, um, to undertake that kind of project. And it does run some risks of thinking about how we rate amongst our peers and how we promote ourselves as an institution. But I think it's absolutely crucial to be able to demonstrate that we are absolutely putting our value where our values are. Right. Well, I think w one of the things that we have to consider is the risk of not doing that. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's true. It's going to take a lot of courage. It's going to take a lot of work. It's a huge culture change. It's a huge, uh, it's going to take courage in the sense of being willing to do some things that other universities are not willing to do yet. Mm -hmm. But we're losing amazing people who are not going into higher education because they can't do the kind of work that they want to do. They Absolutely. can't do work that's meaningful. They can't do work in an environment that's nurturing and sustaining. Mm -hmm. They are um, going into other lines of work because they know what the academy it looks like and feels mm -hmm. like, that, it, that we eat our own best people. Absolutely. We're also, you know, not just losing people within the community, we're losing the trust of the public yeah. who look at institutions of higher education and no longer believe in the promises that they make, no longer believe that they're going to protect their own community, no longer believe that there is a social good beyond the immediate personal career benefit of a credential. And if we become nothing more than a credentialing agency, we have lost everything that higher education in this country was meant to do. Absolutely. And I think the, the return to those habits of mind and those ethical habits of how are we going to interact with one another mm -hmm. so we're nurturing successful thoughtful, mm -hmm. enriching scholarship that is engaged in a meaningful way with the communities we care so deeply about, that is going to have to be at the root of the way forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kathleen, for joining us on the Liberal Arts Endeavor. It has been a real pleasure oh, to talk you. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's been a joy. A big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trago, and our marketing director, producer, Ryan Kilcoyne. And of course, you can access all of Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast at go.cal.msu.edu forward slash podcast. And finally, the opinions expressed on this program do not reflect official entities of Michigan State University. See you next time on the Liberal Arts Endeavor. Thank you.